one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 412 for the week of Monday, April 9th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good day, Sawyer, and good day, world. How y'all doing? Day, night, evening, or whatever it may be. Oh, no, wait, that's for the ending. <laughs> and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I would say that today is a great day, but I'll tell you more about that later. Oh, we'll have to see what you mean about that later. But in the meantime, let's get to our first story. And for this one, we're going to talk about a country that usually doesn't get mentioned in regards to space. That country is North Korea. Now, North Korea is planning to launch its first operational successful satellite sometime between April 12th and April 16th. Now, the name of the rocket is called the Unha-3, which I am probably mispronouncing, which literally, by the way, Unha translates to the Milky Way. The actual rocket itself is approximately 90 tons, has the North Korean flag right along the side, and the satellite that it will be carrying is a 100-kilogram or 220-pound supposed science satellite with the name... And again, I apologize if I mispronounce this as well, because that's almost a guarantee. The Kwangmyong Song 3, which again translated into English literally translates into the Shining Star 3. Because this is their third satellite. The first two were tests, and the third is set to be operational. The launch again is scheduled for sometime between April 12th and April 16th. And North Korea is saying this is entirely scientific. That will be used to study weather patterns as well as to take a look at the actual ground in North Korea to see if they can do anything to help with their already problematic soil and food situation. But other countries such as the United States and most United Nations countries are a little concerned. They're not sure if this is just a scientific experiment or if this is actually an experiment to see if they could launch a nuclear attack on another country. What do you guys think? Do you think that this is purely scientific, or do you think that there's malintentions with it? Oh, boy, that, that's the proverbial can of worms right now here. Um, it could very well be legit, but a lot of other individuals, including a, a lot of uh, uh, press here in the West, are characterizing the vehicle, which, by the way, Sawyer, God bless you if you're going ahead and trying to say all that, because I, you know, you're a better guy, guy than I am. I, I'd really botch all of that, but... Um, I tried practicing of, earlier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, I, I 
personally, again, a lot of the press here in in the West are characterizing this as a missile launch and not a sat, not a not a you know launch of a spacecraft, uh, and it could very well be you know a test of their nuclear capacity. And again, a vehicle like this could theoretically reach the shores here of the United States. I do know that the Philippines right now. On alert for any type of debris that might go ahead and impact them, um, and Japan, you know, this is just in case there's a failure and the, you know there's there's something going on. You know, the Philippines is is kind of got a little bit of a debris alert going on there. Also, Japan has indicated that if the vehicle goes ahead and strays into their airspace, they will shoot it down. I mean, this is how animate the, the Japanese are as far as uh, this being a missile test and not a legitimate space flight. North Korea has had some, you know, less than stellar records of, of you know, being very, very forthcoming. Uh, there's just been a change in power over there. You know, Kim Jong-il passed away and his uh, son, who is, I believe, just on, on the cusp of 30 years of age, Kim Jong-un, is taken over, and he, this you know either a um, you know he's trying to to play nice, and or b he's he's trying to go ahead and trying to to use this to consolidate power, or or c you know maybe he doesn't have a full grasp of power yet, and this little rocket launch is going going forward without that. The other thing too is that a few weeks ago, there was an agreement between the United States and North Korea saying that the United States would give them foodstuffs and so on if they went ahead and suspended all missile tests and if they went ahead and suspended their nuclear program. Well, this theoretically is sort of in violation of that agreement where you know they are launching a quote-unquote missile. Um, and it's just not it's not just the United States that's placing pressure on them again it's 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 Japan it's actually even Russia that, that's saying it the funny thing I've, I see is that China has been awfully quiet about this and if they're trying to go ahead and, and become a player in this area of, of, of operations they really should step in and, and and say something and say you know either say you know we, we support it or we don't support it and we think it should should not not launch so should it launch? Again, uh, North Korea has got a less than stellar habit of not being forthcoming with what they're doing. This could be legit. I don't know. But, you know, they've got to be a little bit more forthcoming about stuff. Well, I mean, China and North Korea obviously have a similar political regime, which also makes it all the more interesting that China has yet to comment regarding this. Yeah, again, they've been awfully quiet, and I kind of wonder why. I mean, they, they want to be a player in this in this area, and they're just, you know, kind of sitting back twiddling their thumbs on this one. But here's the question. Why would the North Korean government allow journalists from around the world, from the Western world specifically, such as the United States, including CNN, the Associated Press, and British news agencies, why would they allow them to go and take a look at their launch site, which is located near North Pyongyang in uh, North Korea, why would they allow them to go and visit that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, a good question. Again, they're trying to be on the up and up and saying that this is indeed a, a scientific mission. But, you know, again, a lot of people see this as provocative. And until you go ahead and open up the payload fairing and say, see, you know, then... Okay, fine. 
Um, a lot of people think this this is this is a disguised nuclear test, and that's what what has got a lot of people sort of agitated. And you know, if I lived in that region, given North Korea's history, yeah, that would have me agitated too. Well, we shall soon find out, or in possible cases, not find out what this actually was, whether it really was a satellite or if it was something else. So with that, we're talking about a country that is famous for possible nuclear concerns. And Gene, you have a nuclear story. How are we going to react? Yeah, that's a very (laughs) – I like that story. Thank you. Um, Yeah, this this is actually a follow-up to a story that I – kind of started back in November of 2011. So uh, plutonium-238 powers are uh, radioisotope thermal nuclear generators, which are attached to a lot of our deep space probes. Voyager 1 and 2 have them on board. The uh, Mars rover Curiosity that is en route to uh, Mars currently has plutonium-238 on board to op- to operate it. It doesn't depend on uh, on, on the solar arrays like uh, Spirit and Opportunity do. Um, the interesting part about the PU-238 that's on board Curiosity, though, it, is it is of Russian origin. Um, Juno, for instance, the Juno spacecraft, did not have enough uh, plutonium-238 available to it. So it had to go ahead and use uh, some very interesting solar arrays to power it. Now, now, I had asked um, at that point um, in the, the news conference, one of the news conference I attended, attended back in uh, November, I had asked uh, Colleen Hartman, who is an assistant uh, associate administrator over um, for NASA in Washington, D.C., a question about uh, plutonium-238 and our supply, and are we looking at any alternates? Should we, can't, should we not be able to jumpstart the, uh, the assembly line in time? And uh, she gave a very interesting response. So if you, if you can go ahead and run that for me, please. Well, the, the natural decay of plutonium-238 is certainly a, a prefer, one of the preferred ways of going. Uh, and the Congress is looking at providing uh, funding to start up for the Department of Energy a new plutonium-238 line. In addition, NASA for some time has been investigating and investing in alternative ways of doing some of these missions. Uh, and that includes ion propulsion, uh, the, uh, the Dawn mission that I mentioned that had gone to Vesta and will then go on to Ceres is ion propulsed. Um, that's a unique way of using propulsion. So we're looking at alternate ways for power and propulsion. But certainly when you are doing something like the Curiosity rover is doing and trying to rove on a planet day and night and do a kind of intense investigation, it is the preferred way. And we don't predict at this stage that we'll have any trouble uh, making sure that the United States and NASA has enough plutonium-238. So we're working it. So, again, she went over uh, the fact that uh, there are working on other uh, sources like you know, uh, ion propulsion and so on. But uh, still, a lot of scientists here thought that our supply was really, really dwindling. And it, w- it looked like it was going to be pretty bad for, for planetary science, uh, especially if we had another rover like, you know, Curiosity. Well, I saw this little article today, oddly enough, in an Indian uh, newspaper uh, called znews.com, uh, 
apparently we are going to go ahead and restart production of plutonium-238. The Department of Energy uh, say that, uh, you know, according to – again, I'm going to quote directly from the article. According to officials in the, in the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, supplies of plutonium-238 are being renewed and plutonium production is going to be renewed. We're not going to exactly say how much we're doing, we're, we're making, but apparently that production will will give us enough to uh, extend out to 2020 and perhaps beyond. So this is really, really good news um, for planetary exploration because when you're that far out, the sun's rays, you, you don't get a lot of solar power out there. You know, you're talking about beyond you know the orbits of Jupiter and so on. You really can't get a lot of a lot of solar energy out there. It's just not enough. So you need an alternate power source. And right now for for you know for powering and keeping your, your spacecraft warm and your electronics warm, that's it. You know, that's the only thing we've got. So again, this bodes well for planetary exploration going forward. So if, if we get enough uh, uh, new projects green-lighted, uh, we're going to have the power source to go ahead and uh, and support it. So this is really, really good news. Yeah, I had the nagging feeling when I started looking into this last year that this was going to be another place where the U.S. overall was going to drop the ball in spite of the emphasis that had been placed on it by the government and by research needs that that we had and that it was just going to keep getting delayed and delayed and delayed and, and cause some significant problems for exploration. But it's good to hear that it's not going to be as bad as it sounded. Yeah, I'm, Mark, I'm going to quote directly from the article. It's probably going to take five or six years before the next plutonium is available. Uh, this according to Wade Carroll from uh, the Department of Energy. But uh, at least production has started. So uh, good news in my in my humble opinion. Uh, again, uh, a mission like, for instance, New Horizons that's going out to Pluto would not be possible without an RTG and uh, uh, possibly uh, new types of uh, missions out to, you know, to Titan and so on that we've got on the books. Those won't be possible without without this. Now, I, I, I can already hear the environmentalists yelling and screaming and saying this is, you know, no nukes in space and all this. Gang, if you've got other alternatives, we'd love to hear them. But right now, this is it. And again, Mark, that that as you know, you you also had a couple of follow-ups, if I recall, in this area, and uh, it both we were both extraordinarily concerned over it. I mean, I was I was concerned that much concerned that I really wanted to bring that up at at, at MSL, and but it looks like the problem may be maybe stemmed off for for the time being, and that's fantastic news for planetary exploration going forward. Alrighty then, so with that, we move on to our final story of round one, and Mark, that goes to you. Well, I'm ready. Uh, I think it's time I drop some names, you know, be a name dropper, and uh, the source of what I'm going to be skipping through is an article that I read on businessweek.com. It was uh, posted there on April 5th, and the title of it is Reentry from NASA to Entrepreneurship. It mentions first Chris Kemp, who was NASA's chief technology officer for five years and how he helped make millions of NASA images, such as the rover tracks on Mars and lunar craters, available online, and he never hired a single employee. The article says that because of congressional budget cuts, he saw his vision for the future slowly slipping further from his grasp. He wrote in a blog post and announced his resignation in March of 2011, saying, I'm leaving the place I dreamed of working as a kid to find a garage in Palo Alto to do what I love. 
After he left NASA, he started his metaphorical garage and he founded Nebula, a cloud computing startup that makes hardware to help data center servers work in unison. Now, his story isn't unique. NASA has been winding down with the end of the shuttle program, and as a result, many of the astronaut scientists' technologies are entering the startup world. They're bright. They're used to working on projects on a large scale, says a uh, managing partner that finances some venture capital startups in Silicon Valley. Now, some of these folks from NASA is people like the former NASA chief of staff, George Whitesides. Does that name ring a bell? President, chief executive officer of Virgin Galactic, project backed by Richard Branson to offer suborbital space flights to tourists. How about Alan Stern? NASA's associate administrator for the Science Mission Directorate before he left in 2008. He's now chief scientist and mission architect at Moon Express, which is developing unmanned spacecraft to take cargo, such as soil samples, to or from the moon. Scott Parazinski, a retired astronaut, veteran of five space shuttle missions. He's been on our show, honored us with the opportunity to chat with him. He helped inspect and repair the thermal protection system on the shuttle after the Columbia tragedy in 2003. Well, he's now CEO of DreamSaver Enterprises and is developing heat-proof boxes for at-home storage of valuables. How about Joshua McKenty? Worked as a contractor at NASA where he developed the agency's cloud computing network to share data, such as photos of the moon. He left the agency in 2011 to start Piston Cloud Computing, which in January released software that companies can use to manage their computing infrastructure. They talk about his startup having 18 people, five of which work for NASA. And he says that NASA's culture is not to be afraid of really hard problems. So you can see where these people are coming from and to where they're going to. You know, the rise of Silicon Valley and the decline of state-sponsored space exploration could affect career paths of a generation. Uh, more than 40% of the students attending one of the premier space program uh, studies colleges is the Georgia Institute of Technology. More than 40% of those students want to work for space-related startups instead of large NASA contractors, says Professor Robert Braun, who left his post as NASA's chief technologist just last year. He says the NASA brand is still pretty strong, but more students want to work for a startup and get their hands dirty. Another another last comment, and then I'll uh, go on to our future stories here. But one individual says the agency is still a rich breeding ground for entrepreneurs. He says we were at NASA to do a startup, says McKenty of the Piston Cloud Computing. He points out the agency is good at creating small, intensely focused teams. We have a bunch of people in one room working late and eating pizza. Again, about Edward Liu, former astronaut, logged over 206 days in space. He said, NASA folks do quite well as entrepreneurs because there's a get-it-done philosophy. And he says that uh, smaller companies can do things quicker and do high-risk things. So it's not all puppies and, and tulips or, or whatever out there. There's Some of these folks are going into enterprises that are risky, but uh, they've got the potential, just like their background at NASA, of some phenomenal successes. And I think it's interesting to realize that uh, with all of the tough times that people are facing, that there are a few people. Of course, 
if I was in the shoes of many of the people that have lost their jobs with NASA, I would probably still be looking for a job because I don't really have a big entrepreneur streak in me. And it takes a little bit of that and quite a bit of courage to jump out there and invent a business and to to go in with people inventing something that's uh, that perhaps has never been done before. But these are the people that can get it done. I'm just wondering too, Mark, uh, they're just can the agency kind of sort of overcome the brain drain that's going on? I would say it can because one of the things that I've recently read is that NASA is looking at younger and younger ages to inspire and to uh, excite students. Of course, your first thought is is high school. But uh, I read recently that NASA is looking even younger into middle school and elementary school to inspire kids. And that's where your future is going to come from, is going to be many of the people that are in the pipeline today in the educational system that can't think, a friend of mine, his daughter can't think of anything but math. Math is her thing. And she's looking to become the first person from a college in, uh, I believe it's in North Georgia, from a, a college there to be the first person to get an advanced, a particular advanced mathematics degree. I couldn't even tell you what it is because it goes way beyond anything I've ever even heard of. But um, there are many, many young people that are out there to to do the impossible and to conquer things, and that's the attitude it takes. All right, so with that, we've made one trip around the table, and you'll notice that these stories are a little longer than usual. That's because, stay tuned, we have a very special third round coming up. Mm. Very special. Boy, yeah, I'm not going to cheat. We talked about it last week. Now you'll have to wait for it. But first, we have another round of stories to hop on through. And I don't mean hop because Easter just happened. But I'll begin round two off with a story that's a shoulda, woulda, coulda. That would've is that if Pluto would have remained a planet, we would have tied for this record. However, since Pluto has been demoted to a dwarf planet, a nearby sun-like star may have a record nine planets which would be the most spotted in another solar system, and in fact, beating our own with eight. The star is called HD 10180, not like your TV, but it's HD 10180, and this was observed from a telescope in Chile. And basically, they took a look at it, and they thought that it originally had a couple of planets, and then they thought six, and then they observed a possible seventh. But the latest research confirmed that on top of the seventh, there are two more, giving it nine planets. Now, according to an article by Daily Mail, the planets vary in size. One is about 65 times the Earth's mass, and uh, one is estimated to be only about 1.4 times heavier than the Earth, making it one of the smallest planets ever discovered outside of our solar system. However, these planets, though, are hot orbits, so basically... They circle in under 10 days for the smallest one, 68 days for the larger one. So you would not want to be there. In fact, the one that has a mass 1.3 times more than the Earth is only about 3 million kilometers away, which meaning that it's closer than Mercury, one, and number two, its surface would be hot enough to melt zinc, tin, and possibly even iron just right on the surface. So I don't think we'd want to be going there. But I, I found that was interesting that... Pluto is no longer a planet, and in doing so, we are also the solar system that does not have the most number of planets. 
Oh, boy. Talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face, huh, Sawyer? <laughs> <laughs> You're not kidding. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if uh, Kep, the, the, uh, the Kepler uh, Observatory, which is up there, had anything to do with uh, finding out this information. According to the article again in the Daily Mail, it says that it was uh, information reanalyzed from data taken from the High Accuracy Radial Velocity Planet Searcher, or HARPS, a high-precision camera mounted on a 3.6-meter telescope in Chile. Ah, okay. It was the infamous HARP, the one that, that Russia was trying to say shot down Phobos Grunt. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it, uh, just, just to tail end on that, uh, uh, the uh, Kepler mission uh, NASA announced uh, last week was also renewed along with the Chandra X-ray uh, telescope. Uh, and a few others, uh, the Fermi, the Fermi uh, Gamma Ray Telescope was renewed, of course, HST, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, um, uh, the, uh, the Planck uh, European Satellite, which was launched in 2009, that was, that was renewed, uh, the Swift Gamma Ray Burst Mission, that, w- that was launched in 2004, uh, this is, I should reiterate that this is coming from uh, an article from space.com. Um, again, the Spitzer Space Telescope, which has been uh, operating uh, without coolant uh, for quite some time, that was renewed. And, uh, and uh, Newton, which is a European X-ray observatory that was launched in 1999, that was renewed. Um, so a lot of the, the planet, you know, a lot of our uh, uh, eyes in the sky have uh, gotten a, a new lease on life. And I'm wondering too if. Um, uh, they too will go ahead and and give some more dazzling results, just as much as uh, as Harp did with us. So this is kind of neat. And darn it, we we could have been number one, but shoot, <laughs> had to demote Pluto. Huh. Okay. <laughs> yep. Go ahead. You can write to scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson at the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> go ahead and write them all and. Don't say we sent you, <laughs> but you can go ahead and write them all and demand that we be tied for most planets in of a known solar system. But in the meantime, we're still in second place here with our nice eight. And if nothing else, we have the best planet with Earth. So there. But on top of all the planets that we've got in our solar system, in fact, Earth, as great of a planet as it is, We've got a recurring problem that, again, I always say we should rename this podcast the Space Junk Podcast. And, Gene, you've got another Space Junk story for us? Actually, yeah, i got two of them. Oh. Uh, over the weekend, uh, a defunct Russian military satellite uh, fell into the Pacific. Uh, this from RIA Nosovi. I'm, again, I'm, I keep on mauling that news agency, uh, and I... Novosti, there we go. I keep on mauling those guys, and I do apologize. Um, apparent, this thing, uh, which was a, uh, a satellite called Molina uh, I-89, uh, fell into the Pacific Ocean on Saturday night, or this past Saturday night, should I say. To quote the article, according to the preliminary data, fragments from the satellite did not burn up in the upper atmosphere and reach the Earth's surface um, and may have fell into the Pacific Ocean, but it, it was scattered over a, a large area. Uh, so we really don't know if anything has actually hit land or not. Um, now to uh, go ahead and try to figure out another way of dealing with this. This is from uh, MSNBC.com and another uh, 
uh, National Space Society alumni by the name of Leonard David wrote an interesting article about uh, a little theory that a, a, a gentleman by the name of Daniel Gregory over at Raytheon uh, has. And he wants to use not another vehicle to go ahead and take down, you know, sort of like the what the Swiss want to do with um, Clean Sweep 1, which is to go ahead and latch on onto a piece of space junk and kind of sort of bring it down that way with, 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 the, with the latcher and the... And, and the spacecraft in tow and just kind of sort of, you know, plunge both of them in, into the atmosphere. Uh, Daniel Gregory's got an interesting theory here. He wants to go ahead and use bursts of air uh, produced within the Earth's atmosphere that could be directed at, at a piece of orbiting space junk and bring it down that way. Either it would the bur- the air burst would, could either change its trajectory so it would come down a lot sooner or cause drag again, which would go ahead and hasten the thing's reentry inward. According to the article here, uh, the concept is being fleshed out under the uh, NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts uh, program, uh, and uh, it was uh, presented at a uh, brief in Pasadena, California, in March, at at a at a symposium for this particular group. The preliminary results, according to Gregory, show that this could work, but we want they want to go ahead and do some further study. He's saying that uh, he can, quote, we can affect many pieces of the debris simultaneously if they're all close together. Uh, hopefully with less than, than a 3% change in velocity, you can deorbit most of the low Earth orbit debris. So, again, this is a possibility that uh, – uh, you, you might be able to use this method to get rid of some of the low-flying flying junk that's out there. Uh, so again, this is a promising way of dealing with with uh, with uh, with the trash, and uh, we'll be again watching this story and many other uh, space debris stories in the future. Alrighty then. Well, now we're flying right along, and that happens to fly over to Mark. Oh goody, it's my turn. I get to talk about some really fun stuff on this one because. I'm just one of those kids that in some respects never grew up, and in this respect, I'm talking about aircraft and high-performance military-slash-NASA aircraft like the T-38, for instance. Um, What I'm going to refer to here is from a couple of sources. Some is NASA's web pages, some is a few news articles that I'll just make quick reference to, but in particular from the National Research Council, a study that was done called Preparing for the High Frontier, the Role and Training of NASA NASA Astronauts in the Post-Space Shuttle Era. And I've referred to this already in a few brief parts, but the part I want to focus on tonight has to do with the T-38N, the T-38 Talon. What is the need for it? Why do we need to have, why do we need to pay for, as U.S. taxpayers at any rate, why do we need to pay for a high-performance aircraft for astronauts to fly when there's no longer a shuttle? And that's what this study looked into was exactly those things. And basically, if you think about the fact that the shuttle program was winding down, they commissioned this study to take a look at what are the needs for a fleet of aircraft. Is it cost-effective to maintain this fleet of T-38s? For astronaut uh, training requirements, is there a better way to do it? So they're looking at money. And that, of course, can be scary oftentimes. But I think in this case, they came to some conclusions that I think people will be happy with. The T-38 
is the flight readiness training aircraft used for NASA's spaceflight training needs. Uh, currently, the Air Force uses a very similar aircraft. It's called the T-38C, slightly different, but uh, NASA's T-38 has some communications, navigation capabilities in addition to weather radar, data link weather system, terrain avoidance and warning system, a terminal collision avoidance system, GPS with localizer performance with vertical guidance approach capability, redesigned electrical, inlet, ejector nozzle, and flight management systems. The report says there's currently seven Block II aircraft of the T-38N and 14 Block III aircraft. The Block II version from 1990 included the first class cockpit designed as well as some safety upgrades. The Block III version from 2007 incorporated electronic flight instrumentation and several additional safety upgrades in compliance with NASA and FAA requirements. The T-38N has recorded zero Class A mishaps involving a fatality, total disability, or more than $1 million damage per 100,000 flight hours since the year 2000. So this really is a uh, an extraordinary aircraft. Uh, well, what about the Russians? Well, they're provided aircraft flight time. Uh, the Chinese, as a, for instance, they select Taikonauts from active military pilots. Presumably, they have flight currency. Uh, the Russians get significantly less aircraft training time due to constraints. For instance, the transfer of the Gagarin Training Center from the Russian Air Force to civilian control resulted in loss of all other aircraft except for a modified Tu-154. They do get some flight time, though. They do provide their trainee cosmonauts, whether a military pilot or a civilian engineer, with some stressful training in the form of parachute jumping. Now, stressful training is what this is all about. And I'd like to refer to a NASA.gov page that I found that said the headline of it. This is actually from April of 2011, and it said T-38 SOAR is spaceflight trainers. And they refer to some names that are well-known amongst the astronaut corps. A couple of astronauts that contributed to this was uh, Terry Virts and also Story Musgrave. Terry Vert said it's actually the most important training that they do as astronauts. It's the one place where we're not in a simulator. It's real flying. If you make a mistake, you can get hurt or break something or run out of gas. There's a lot of things that happen real world in a T-38 that don't happen in a simulator. Story Musgrave made the statement, you're in a different world. It's a dynamic world, and it doesn't matter whether it's a shuttle or a T-38. Uh, Story Musgrave was a six-time shuttle flyer. He posted thousands of hours in the T-38, and he also instructed others on how to fly it, too. He said it's understanding the rules and how to live within the rules. The T-38 is uh, supersonic up to Mach 1.6, can fly above 40,000 feet, can wrench their pilots through more than 7 Gs. That's enough to uh, make a lot of things difficult that, that you would uh, think you could do easily. Uh, Terry Vert said it's a great aircraft for what they do at NASA because it's fast, it's high performance, and it's very simple. Uh, Terry Vert started flying the T-38 when he was a 21-year-old lieutenant. He said it pulls G's, but not quite like a frontline fighter. It's fast, but frontline fighters are faster. But the one thing the T-38 can do amazingly well is roll. You jam the stick to the side, and it rolls really, really fast. And that's something on your first flight. He said they always want to demonstrate it to you. And at first you're like, oh, cool. And then after a bunch of rolls, he says you're like, all right, that's enough rolling the airplane. It requires you to think fast. And uh, he referred to 
flying down to the Cape and seeing their shuttle and doing an orbit about the pad before his flight. And uh, I believe that was the one that Sawyer saw the launch from Cape Kennedy of and met some of the family uh, when we got together prior to prior to launch day at one of the local restaurants. Uh, another little quote from Story Musgrave, he said, uh, comparing a T-38 and a spacesuit. He said, uh, mechanically, there's no similarities. The spacesuit doesn't have a control stick and rudder pedals. However, if you think about a T-38 in your spacesuit, you have critical supplies that can't be allowed to run out. That means in both cases, the operator has to follow your progress carefully, make sure you're not using too much fuel in the case of the aircraft or oxygen in the case of a spacesuit. And Story Musgrave said it's not the same, but it is being an operator. It's procedures, checklists. It's getting on with it, learning the program, and doing it right. It's all those things. It'll help you, and it'll help you everywhere else, too. The T-38 has been hailed by astronauts for its safe simplicity, safety, and reliability. And it refers to a few surprises. But um, kind of to wind it all up, Terry Vert said, the reason for T-38 is spaceflight readiness training. And Story Musgrave described it as a classic timeless beauty. One last little tidbit, and I'll, uh, I'll wind it up with with my uh, dissertation of how important the T-38 is to astronaut training. Uh, a statement in the report said, The physical, physical and psychological attributes of astronaut candidates are tested during selection and are well documented. However, the manifestation of some of these attributes, such as performance during stressful situations, is not usually observed until put into real situations. A candidate can pass the psychological examination, but such an exam will not reveal if he or she can work with another astronaut through an emergency procedure when both engines flame out at 41,000 feet over a thunderstorm or when power interruptions occur on orbit. And it says here also, too, that unlike a simulator, there's no pause button in the aircraft to enable the crew members to escape a challenging or deteriorating situation. Short of using the ejection seats, the crew must work together to stabilize and overcome any situation they encounter. Astronauts report that the high-stress aviation environment closely mimics the stresses of spaceflight and prepares them for timely, accurate responses needed aboard a spacecraft. So uh, bottom line, I'm just going to wind up and say that if you ever hear of somebody saying that uh, the T-38s that NASA uses are just toys for for the uh, hotshot astronauts to go jet around the country, no, sir. They're part of their training, and in some cases, they would probably benefit from more time in the in the cockpit, more flight time. But they are very, very important, and uh, it, it was good for me. I thought this was an interesting report to read because you don't really think about them. It's just the cool-looking airplane that you see the astronauts fly into to various uh, you know, public relations events or, or certainly mission-type transport that they use them for. But there we go. That's the start of some T-38 talk, and I'll hit pause until we get into the last part of our show where I'll mention another few little short tidbits. The very big news that we wanted to get to is coming up right after this commercial break. No, I'm kidding. We don't have commercial sponsors. If there's anybody out there, please give me a shout. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get right to the important news. Talking Space will be covering the events of the Space Shuttle retirement through the month of April. We will be covering the event from all angles. We will be covering Discovery at Kennedy Space Center. We'll be covering 
Discovery's arrival at DC, Enterprise's departure from DC, and its arrival in New York City from these three team members here of Talking Space. And we're going to go around a little bit, give you each a preview of what's coming up, and then we'll give you some more details about when to expect these shows. How about we start off with where the shuttle's going to be first, and that will be the first event at Kennedy Space Center, and Mark will be covering us there. What's going to be going on down there, Mark? I've got about six days' worth of uh, events that NASA and Kennedy Space Center has made available to the press, and i um, planning, in fact, tomorrow, talking about being excited, I'm heading down to Cape Kennedy tomorrow, which is Tuesday, April 10th, for the arrival of the shuttle carrier aircraft. The following day, Wednesday the 11th, there's an opportunity to tour the shuttle carrier aircraft and interview pilots and crew. Also talk to some of the United Space Alliance employees that are part of the shuttle transition and retirement. And also the folks that handle the uh, shuttle SCA mate-demate operation. On uh, Saturday the 14th, I anticipate seeing Discovery roll out of the VAB over to the shuttle landing facility and then uh, be able to watch the process of uh, picking her up and setting her on the SCA. On uh, Monday the 16th, they're going to back the aircraft and Discovery out of the mate-demate device, and I imagine at that point it'll sit on the ramp until Tuesday morning when it's scheduled to depart at first light from the shuttle landing facility for Washington, D.C. And it's interesting, if anybody caught uh, some some mentions on April 5th about NASA T-38s flying low over Washington, D.C., that was actually, when I saw that coming up, I thought, eh, that's not just a coincidence. And it, it certainly isn't, because just announced today is what's actually hoped to occur, and that's that NASA T-38s will be doing photo chase of the shuttle carrier aircraft with Discovery on top doing some low approaches across Washington. And there's one picture that shows a T-38 approaching and just to the left of the Washington Monument. And I'm hoping for some some gorgeous, uh, gorgeous photos that'll that'll come out on Tuesday, the 17th, when when they uh, when they fly into Dulles. So that's my part for the next uh, week and a half, 10 days or so. So from there, it will depart from Kennedy Space Center with Space Shuttle Discovery on board, and it will land at Dulles International Airport, right near the Smithsonian and right near the Udvar Hazy Center, which is where Gene will be covering his events. And what do you got for us coming up, Gene? Well, first, I want to go ahead and thank the uh, folks over at Max Q Entertainment that are going to go ahead and help us out with some of the photography that Mark was mentioning around the uh, the Washington D.C. area. I've asked them if they could share a few of their uh, their photographs, and we will be presenting some of that material on the website uh, as it uh, becomes available. Uh, But I will be on site in Washington, D.C. on April 18th, and uh, on the 19th, uh, there will be a public ceremony welcoming uh, Orbiter Discovery to the Udvar-Hazy Center at the uh, Smithsonian. And uh, then on April 20th, I will be attending a private event uh, that will preview uh, Discovery before the public can see her. So uh, a lot of other folks are going to be there. Uh, some, From what I understand, the Smithsonian indicates that some former astronauts are going to be there. But it, it's it's going to be kind of interesting. We're going to be there with a whole bunch of other uh, 
folks uh, that did not quite make the uh, the official uh, NASA social event. Uh, so I would I'll be getting their point of view as far as what they're seeing and and so on and how excited they are to see Discovery in her new home. Hopefully too I'll get a chance to see Enterprise uh, before she takes off for New York. Um, and Sawyer, that's where you sort of come in, no? That's exactly where I come in, and the Spatial Enterprise will be making its way, and it's currently scheduled to land at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York on Monday, April 23rd. The activities there will start around 11 a.m. with some official ceremonies, and the ceremony should conclude quickly sometime between noon and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. But I will be there covering the event. I will do my best to see if I can get some interviews with some people at the museum. That I can guarantee. See who else may be there that I can talk to as well. And the photographers and videographers for this event will be myself and myself. So I'll do my best to get you guys everything that I can. I'll post some pictures hopefully and get some video as well of that landing. I'll see what I can do for everybody. How's that? Sounds grand, Sora. Thanks a bunch. Tell you what, let's start hoping now for perfect weather at all three locations on the Amen. on the multiple days that are involved in this operation. This is no simple thing, and and weather, I, I certainly hope it cooperates uh, perfectly for all of us. All right. Now, in regards to scheduling with our upcoming shows because of these events, all of us are going to be all over the place here, so we will... <laughs> do our best to have a show for you next week we have a very special guest set to return on april 16th however due to all of these events we will not be releasing a show on wednesday april 25th with our usual recording date on monday april 23rd we will however be back with a very special episode detailing all of the events that went on on Wednesday, May 2nd is that scheduled release date. And, of course, if it's any time after that, you can always download that from our website or from iTunes. And if we record as planned uh, for that date that you just mentioned a release of, you know what will be happening on the day we record, which I'm also hoping to see? SpaceX launch. That's right. Oh, That's yes, of right. course. If it launches, we'll obviously give a quick mention to that. And that happens to tie in, of course, with the end of the shuttle program, but we will be trying our best to cover all of the end of program events with the space shuttle program. So we're doing our best to give that to you right here with a very busy month of April and all of the events. Again, that's Discovery from the Kennedy Space Center to Washington, D.C. That's Discovery then's processing once it gets there, Enterprise's departure from D.C., and then the arrival of Space Shuttle Enterprise in New York City. Now, with all of that out of the way, you've got something to look forward to. You'll see who our special guest is next week. And in the meantime, though, I'd like to thank everybody here who joined us. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulloch. It was a blast, Sawyer, and I hope everybody out there had, a, had as much fun listening to this as I did uh, talking about it. This was a fun show. Indeed. We will not be seeing you next week, I believe, Mark, since you'll be out covering those events. So thank you for joining us as well, Mark Ratterman. I'll be back. When will you be back? End of April. Gosh, it's sad. I'll be having so much fun. I'm not going to be able to be here for a couple weeks, but carry on. That's all right. I have a feeling we'll get some great clips from you, though, and we'll be sure to listen to those once May comes around. But... As stated, we will be back next week, and we hope you will as well. So, in the meantime, though, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or wherever it may be where you are.